Psalm 21, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim their faces at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and renew my life according to your word. Amen. Are you the kind of person who looks back or forward? It may be a false choice because David is able to do both. Psalm 21, a psalm of David, it says, yet seems to have been written for congregational singing. In these words, you can hear David's voice, and you can also hear the voices of God's people. This victory celebration is a moment of collective thanksgiving as the king and his people rejoice in the God who delivered them from their enemies. It comes just after Psalm 20, which is a prayer for that very deliverance. In Psalm 20, it's asked that David would be given the desire of his heart and granted his request. And verse 2 affirms those desires have been granted, that God has not withheld the request of his lips. Psalm 20 warned of downfall for those who trust in chariots and horses. In Psalm 21, Israel's king trusts in the name of the Lord, and so shall not be moved. At some point in his life, many points actually, David led the people in prayers to God for deliverance. And at another moment in his life, many moments, David led the people in praising God for delivering them. Psalm 21 is one of those moments. It doesn't only look backward, however. As another teacher observed, the tense is also future, anticipating victories that are yet to come. That's why the psalm isn't organized by past, present, and future. All three tenses are here throughout. Instead, salvation is described in its two parts of victory and deliverance. And both victory and deliverance have David and the people looking back and looking forward all throughout the psalm. 
The first section, verses 1 through 6, is about victory. The positive experience of God's salvation. Verse 1 says the king exults greatly in it. Verse 5 adds that his glory is great through it. In these first six verses, the great preacher Jim Boyce identified six specific blessings for which David and the people give thanks. In verse 1, it's the victory itself. Real victory only comes through God's strength. In our salvation, God did by his strength what we could never have done in our own. And how many other times throughout the day and the week do we experience miniature versions of that same truth? Victories that could not be ours apart from God's strength. Like David in Psalm 20, we should pray for God to save us by his strength. And like David in Psalm 21, we should rejoice in gratitude every single time he does. Verse 2 praises God for the blessing of answered prayer. Yes, salvation was the thing for which they prayed, but the very fact that God hears and answers any prayer is a praiseworthy blessing all by itself. In our corporate prayer together on Sunday morning and in prayer meeting on Tuesdays, we always try to remember to praise God for the prayers that he's answered. One blessing of salvation is that God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Verse 3 acknowledges another rich blessing. In David's case, blessings that came through his rule of Israel. In 2 Samuel 12, David takes the gold crown of the defeated Ammonite king for his own head. It's 75 pounds of gold. It's set with precious stones all around it. Quite literally a rich blessing as in this verse. But here David's using the term more broadly. He's talking about the blessings that come from doing our work faithfully before God. When we do the work that he's given us, blessings flow forth. It could be income from our labors or gratitude and praise from others or even the the sense of purpose and accomplishment we find in the good work that we do. These are the rich blessings for which David praises his God. Verse 4 praises him for the blessing of life itself, length of days on earth. And verse 5, for the glory, splendor, and majesty that are bestowed upon David through his leadership and military success. But it's the last of these blessings, which is undoubtedly the greatest. That's verse 6. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. What's the deepest longing of your heart? What, when you get it, do you believe will finally make you glad? Is it significance or love, perhaps perhaps acceptance or value, enjoyment or safety? What's the deepest longing of your heart? 
None of those are bad things, but you know none should be your deepest longing. That longing should be reserved for God. And when it is, the experience of his presence is the greatest blessing you will ever receive. It finally satisfies and makes the heart glad. That's if you love God. As another pastor put it, God's presence does not seem like a great blessing to those who do not love him. It's like receiving a fruitcake at Christmas. Can I save this to re-gift for next year? They love the things God gives, but not God himself. They want God to provide for them, to forgive them, to protect their children, to heal them, and to give them countless other blessings, but they do not want God himself. David wants God himself. He loves God. He's leading the congregation to love God. And when he looks back at their past, he sees not only that God saved them, but that God was with them. When he considers his current state of mind, he rejoices above all else that God is with them. And when he looks to the future, he does so with trust and hope because he knows that God will be there with them. Now we know even better than David did just how with us God was willing to be. And as you look carefully at Psalm 21, you can see many things that are true of King David, but also many things that can only be true of King Jesus. In fact, in the early translations of the Targum and the Talmud, the most important aids in Judaism for understanding Scripture, that word king in verse 1 was always translated King Messiah. King David can praise God in verse 4 for long life. But only the eternal life that King Jesus gives can make those days last forever and ever. In fact, Jesus could speak this whole psalm himself. Jesus prayed to God to save him in resurrection power, and Jesus rejoiced to receive nothing less than eternal life. Even the promises to David, the promise in which David lived and reigned, this promise that his throne would be established and the throne of his kingdom would endure forever, that promise is made to him only in and through and because of Christ. And yet David takes hold of it with absolute certainty. Do you live with that same kind of security? Does your perspective on the presence of God in the past make you strong in dealing with the present and looking with hope to the future? Is the blessing of God's promise in your life any less than what was offered to David? And yet of him it's said, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. David and the congregation of God's people live on the sure foundation of God's promised and realized salvation. And how much more clearly has that salvation been realized in us? 
through their union and communion with God, they describe all the other joys and blessings that he gives as finding their fullest expression. They rattle off all these blessings for which they're thankful that have come from the hand of God because they are sure in what God has done and what God has said. Should we live in anything less than they did? Verse 7 uses the word bota, trust, of the king, and the word hesed, steadfast love of God, Trust and steadfast love, these are the key words of covenant life with God. In his hesed, his steadfast love, he saves and keeps us. And we respond in active trust, daily believing in his word and his promises. And that's why our pasts and our futures intertwine as we look back to God and his steadfast love, and then look forward in active trust because it will never change. The congregation is thankful to God for their king and for his acts of faithfulness. David has been a good king to them, but they focus their praise not on David, but on God, the strength that he gives to David and the good that he's done through David When they look at David and they think about how important he is to their history and to their future, they think this not because of their king, but because of God who is faithful to his covenant. I read the story of Queen Victoria's 60th anniversary celebration at the turn of the 19th century. And Rudyard Kipling, the accomplished poet, was asked to write something for the occasion and to share that poem with the dignitaries, with the members of the royal court, with everyone gathered to lavish praises on Victoria and to celebrate her reign. And they they had a lot to celebrate. There was national pride for the significant accomplishments of the people and the kingdom under her rule. But Kipling thought more like David than like a Victorian supplicant. And so he wrote this. God of our fathers known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line beneath whose awful hand we hold, dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dew and headland sinks to the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Whatever we think of the rulers of our cities, state, and nation, Psalm 21 reminds us that we would do well to pray for them. We must pray for them. The only strength and wisdom they can have to do what's right comes from God. If we are to enjoy any blessings from their rule and leadership, those blessings will come from God himself. Pray for them. And also, we need not fear them, nor what the future holds. 
for it all comes from God. Starting in verse 8, the second half of the psalm deals with the negative side of salvation, what we call deliverance. Though the language seems quite different, the tone is the same as before. That God delivered his people necessitates that God judges and destroys those who hate them. And in both halves of the psalm, the people rejoice with thanksgiving for what God has done. It's two sides of the same coin. Another teacher finds three stages to God's judgment in these verses. Discovery, destruction, and defeat. You can see the discovery in verse 8 as God finds out his enemies and those who hate him. It uses that phrase twice, that God finds them out. It's one of the strangest beliefs in the universe that an enemy of God thinks he can escape God's notice. Perhaps she believes that outward rebellion will be caught, but that inward indifference toward God somehow will never be seen. Those who persecute God's people, not with swords, but with selfishness. Not with lugers, but with lies. Not by demolishing churches, but marriages and families. Are they not also enemies of God? And we, who live in the wake of the consequences of their sin, do we not cry out to God for deliverance from these evils as much as any more dramatic or violent or newsworthy? For the unrepentant, that deliverance must include the destructive judgment of verses 9 and 10. In Israel's recent case, that came at the hands of their king in military victory. But make no mistake, they knew that righteous judgment can ultimately only come from the hand of God. You should pray for your enemies. You should think humbly with regards to your enemies, because it is only God's grace that brought you from that destructive path. And with humility and prayer, you may also rest in the comfort of God's righteous justice. He will discover all his enemies, the enemies of his people, and he will deliver you from them, and he will destroy them. That's why the third stage of God's judgment is defeat. These verses should be great comfort to us and provoke similar praise from our lips. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. What they're scheming against you, if you are walking with Christ, it will not work. Their plans will be completely defeated. The difficulties they're creating in your life, they will not succeed to overtake you. They cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. They cannot cause one hair to fall from your head that your heavenly Father does not intend for some good and wise purpose. What you are tempted to fear, it will not succeed. For all the plans of his enemies will be defeated. Could there be any greater example of this than on the cross? 
satanic scheming through the desires of evil men. Death itself desiring to put Jesus in the grave forever. But read this psalm. Can't you hear Jesus praising his father? Because those plans did not succeed. The schemes didn't work. His enemies were conquered, even that greatest of enemies, death. Yes, God will save his faithful king, and he will save you, all of you who are in him. Another teacher pointed out that the trajectory of this psalm moves from Christ's joy to our joy when God saved Christ, he saved us. Our lives are bound up in his. His victory is our victory, and so his joy can be our joy. It's no coincidence that Psalm 22, which describes Jesus' agony, comes right after this one. God made Christ great by allowing him to suffer at the hands of evil men, even unto death, and rescuing him from their evil schemes. Don't you see it in verse 5? His glory is great through your salvation. But if it's all glory to God, where do we come in? Do we have any part to play or good to do in this overcoming of evil and triumph of God in the world? In him? Of course we do. And I think the psalm already showed us at least three ways. The first was when we encountered the word trust. God is faithful to his people and his covenant If you are in Christ, you can look back and see that we simply could not be here except that God has brought us this far. That's true, most importantly, of your salvation. And it's also true of your sanctification, your marriage, your growth in grace and wisdom. It's true in your family. And it's true in this church. Austin told us last week we should prepare to hear often from the pen of the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. And since I have quoted Spurgeon nearly every week from this pulpit, I will do so here by name. Spurgeon said, We also will rejoice more and more as we learn by experience more and more fully the strength of our covenant God. Our weakness unstrings our harps but his strength tunes them anew. If we cannot sing one note in honor of our own strength, we can at any rate rejoice in the strength of our God. Do your harps feel unstrung this morning? Mine does sometimes. But thanks be to God, his strength tunes them anew. Yes, we've experienced our share of hardship and trial, but seeing what God has done and rejoicing in the blessings he's given us thus far, will we not trust him for what comes next? 
I mean that sincerely, deeply, passionately, whatever adverb or adjective you'd like to use, rejoicing in the blessings he's given us thus far, will we not trust him for what comes next? Also, though it's only by God's strength and grace, I think there's also work for us to do in this area of of desiring to see him, of loving him actively. If we want to think that way, that our greatest blessing is to, to see God, to experience the presence of God, what does it take in response to his grace to get there, to grow in that continually? I think we find that answer not in Psalm 21, but in the Beatitudes. Do you remember who Jesus said will have the blessing of seeing God? It's the pure in heart. If we really want to see God, we should live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him, a way that is pure in heart. I'm going to read you some pointed examples because I wonder in these moments of temptation if we're willing to say such things to God and to ourselves. Are we willing to say, I want to see God more than I want this thing I could steal? More than I want to covet the life he's given someone else? More than I want to watch this pornography on my iPad. More than I want another drink. More than I want to avenge my own hurt. More than I want boys to look at me. More than I want people around me to be impressed. More than I want to text the gossip I just heard. I want to be pure in heart because more than anything else, I want to see God. Kids, I'll tell you what I have learned. In the battle against sin and temptation, there simply must be something stronger on the other side. If our desire to see God isn't stronger than our desire for all else, sin will rule over us. That's why we worship. That's why the focus of this worship is to make Jesus seen, to make him seen in his beauty and in his grace and love and power. Because if by his spirit you can see him for who he is, you will want him more than anything. Your significance as his child will always feel like enough. His love will be so rich that you pursue other loves in life with your tank full rather than empty. His acceptance will be so complete and so unconditional that you don't grovel for it from any other. Your value will be from your identity in him and not from what you can produce for other people. Your enjoyment will be in his blessings which are yours in any circumstance. And nowhere in the whole universe is safer than an obedience to his good will.
if you love him more than all else, you will see him. I trust then the third one's easy to see. (laughs) The third part we have to play in all this comes quite naturally. Looking back and looking forward, this is where David and the congregation of God's people end. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Christians, sing and praise the power of God. Here with us and later every day in your home, by yourself, with your friends and family, in front of those who can't yet understand, let them all see and hear you praise the God from whom all blessings flow. Because by his salvation, we've come this far. So many blessings. And trusting in the victory and deliverance we've received already, we anticipate innumerable blessings yet to come. You can look back. You can look forward. And in both directions, you will see a faithful God. And so may he be praised in this church by this church's pastor, and by our congregation, now and forevermore. Amen.